You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. I want to invite you to make your way to the gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 7 and our text for this morning will be verses 1 through 10. If you're a guest with us, we are in a series where we've entitled From the Manger to the Throne, and we are making our way through the gospel according to Luke. And today we arrive at chapter 7. In a moment, I want to read verses 1 through 10. I would imagine that some gifts are more valuable to you than other gifts, depending on your age. For example, just a guess, I would imagine that for the majority of you here, receiving a cell phone as a gift would not be considered a great gift of epic proportion. Unless you're a teenager. Receiving your first cell phone, listen, it feels like a rite of passage. Take it from me, the father of three teenagers. Actually, I'm about to be the father of two teenagers as of Tuesday when my oldest becomes a young adult. But here's what I know, being in a house full of teenagers, getting your first cell phone feels like a big deal. So the first of our three children to receive a cell phone, obviously, was our oldest, Sydney. She was 15 and a half when we surprised her one Christmas with an iPhone. Now, our plan was to wait till she was 16. We were going to give it to her on her birthday. But several factors caused us to change our minds, so we gave it to her sooner. Sydney did not expect to receive a phone for Christmas. She, she had no idea. She, she was pretty certain. We were pretty certain that we were going to give it to her once she turned 16. And actually, that Christmas was one of those Christmases where she was just like, gosh, I don't even know what I want. Uh, there's not anything I'm even asking for. So the fact that she was really not expecting much for Christmas, especially a phone, that made the surprise even sweeter. And let's just say her response was memorable when she realize what she had received. And I loved it because my wife had the brilliant idea of let's take the box that the cell phone comes in and let's wrap it up really nice and then let's put it in a bigger box and let's wrap it up and then let's put it in a bigger box and let's wrap it up and let's put it in a bigger box. So Sydney, here she is. Now, I don't know how it works in your house. The last gift is always kind of either the gift you are really hoping for or a gift maybe you didn't know you were going to receive, but it's the big one. And Cindy really was not expecting much for Christmas, had no idea what we would get her for Christmas. So we hand her this large Amazon box, and we had let her brother and sister in on the secret. So they're sitting there like, oh, Cindy, you just, oh, you're just going to be so excited. And she's like, what in the world could this be? She opens up the first box. There's another box. She opens up that box. There's another box. She begins to laugh. We begin to laugh. And then she makes it to the last box, opens it up, and sees what that box says. And it took a moment like, are they playing with me? And then she realized, oh my, I've received 
a cell phone. Watching Sydney unwrap each box not only brought laughter, it actually heightened the sense of surprise. This past week, I began to think about not only that story, but I just began to think about the way in which we give gifts because Sydney's birthday is on Tuesday. These thoughts of giving gifts has been on my mind. And I, I began to reflect on something. I don't know if you've ever thought about before. Why is it that we wrap gifts anyways? Have you ever thought about that? Maybe, maybe all the guys in here are just like, yeah, why do we wrap gifts? That just seems expensive. I mean, paper. Have you seen how much paper? Wrapping paper costs, and somebody's just going to tear it open. Ribbon, bows, bags with white paper you have to stick in there and make it look nice. I mean, why not just hand people the Walmart sack and just say, here you go? But we don't do that, do we? Aren't you glad we don't do that? So why, why do we do that? Here's why. Because unwrapping a gift increases our anticipation and our delight in receiving that gift, doesn't it? As Sydney was opening up that gift, she was like, what, what in the world could be in a box this big? Only to open up another one and like, well, wow, what's going on here? It, it added to the anticipation and the delight in receiving this gift. Church family, today we get to unwrap several extraordinary gifts. Actually, every Sunday when the word of God is preached, we receive a great, great gift. God reveals himself to us. Every Sunday, every Sunday, we get such a sweet gift. I don't know how you view the sermon each Sunday. I want to encourage you to think of the sermon like the unwrapping of a gift. Every point, every text we walk through, it's not tedious. It's like tearing off the paper of what is God going to show us today. So every Sunday, we get to unwrap a wonderful, incredible gift. But today, we get to unwrap too. Because God is going to reveal to us in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, one of the greatest but most neglected gifts that we can receive from him. So God is going to reveal himself like he always does, but what he's going to reveal to us is a gift in itself. He's going to reveal something that is the greatest, but often the most neglected gift anyone can receive from him. Now, I am so tempted to tell you what it is. And it is everything in me, not just to shout it out, but I think unwrapping it together will increase our delight in this gift. So let's begin unwrapping this sweet gift God has for us this morning. Beginning in chapter 7, I want to read verse 1 to get us started because it sets the context. And church, this is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. In verse 1, we read this. After he, being Jesus, had finished all his saying in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Luke sets out the context behind 
what's about to take place next. After Jesus finishes his message on discipleship that he delivered to the crowd, that we have been studying for four weeks now, Jesus preaches this amazing sermon to this large crowd about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. After he finishes this sermon, we're told that he moves on to a new place called Capernaum. And in this new place, a new phase of his ministry is about to begin. And this is what we find out happens next, verses 2 and 3. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to the el- he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. At some point after arriving in this place called Capernaum, a centurion, a high-ranking Roman official, hears that Jesus has come, and, and, and it just happens to be that one of his servants who means the world to him is on his deathbed, and if Jesus doesn't heal him, he is certain to die. And so what does this centurion do? He sends some Jewish leaders, some of the elders, to go and to request that Jesus would heal his servant. And look what happens next, verses 4 and 5. And when they, these Jewish elders, came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. Did you hear what they just said as they come to Jesus making this request? Think for a moment about what these leaders just said to Jesus. They come, they let him know of the situation, they let him know about the centurion, his sick servant, his need of healing. But do you notice what they say? They say, Jesus, listen, you, you, I, I don't know what your plans are, but you, you got to do this. You absolutely have to heal this guy, sir. Here's here's why. He deserves it. He has scratched our back. We want to scratch his. He's been good to us. We want to be good to him. Jesus, we've got to do this. this. This guy deserves such a request to be met. See, these leaders were obviously appealing to Jesus That he perform this miracle and save this servant's life based on merit. And then we read at the very beginning of verse 6, and Jesus went with them. Now, if we stopped there and didn't read any further, we could get the impression that after hearing the case of these Jewish elders, Jesus was persuaded. So, you know, that, that... Probably be a good strategic plan. We don't know what's going to come up in the days ahead with Rome. It's good to have a good friend in high places. I will heal him because you're right. He has done great things for us. So I'm on my way. But that's not what happens. Look what takes place next. The rest of verse 6 and 7. And When he, Jesus, was not far from the house... The centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself 
for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Did you hear what just took place? Did you notice what occurred once the centurion got word that Jesus was not far from his house? He sends out friends and they speak on behalf of the centurion to Jesus. And notice the first words out of their mouth on behalf of their master. They call Jesus Lord. And the centurion says, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. I was not expecting that. I know my place. I'm not worthy for you to step into my house. If anything, that's why I didn't come myself. I sent Jewish elders because I know that though I may have a high position in government, I am no one and don't deserve any kind of special treatment. My position hasn't earned me a hearing with you. What humility. Now listen to then what he says next to Jesus. The end of verse 7 into verse 8. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Do you hear the second part of what the centurion just proclaimed? Not only does he say, Jesus, I'm not worthy of you to, to come into my house. It's not necessary. Right where you are, you say the word and it's over. Not only am I not worthy for you to come, I know who you are because I know who I am. And I say a word to one of my soldiers and they do it. Do you just hear what this military leader just confessed publicly about Jesus? That he has authority to make things happen by simply uttering a command. Now, don't be thrown off by the centurion's comments here in verse 8. Even though the centurion compares himself to Jesus in regards to giving commands and having people carry out his command, make no mistake. Make no mistake. This man doesn't see himself on par with Jesus at all. Remember what he said in verse 6. I am not worthy for you to even come in my house. The Jewish leaders were impressed by his position and his clout and what he had done. This guy didn't have the same opinion about himself. And he knew who Jesus was. But so that we don't miss the significance of the centurion's response to Jesus, Luke informs us of how Jesus responds to this man. Listen to these words at the beginning of verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at them. That struck me this week. I remember reading those words 
early in the week and just sitting there for a few moments, taken back by it. Did you hear Jesus' response? His friends come, the centurion's friends come, They pronounce all of this stuff on behalf of their master or their friend. And it says, upon hearing what this man said, Jesus marveled at him. That's amazing. Think about it. In every other place in Luke's gospel, when the word marvel is used, it's because Jesus has this just performed a miracle. And upon seeing that miracle, it says everyone marveled at him. But not here. Jesus is doing the marveling. He's not being marveled at. He's marveling at this guy. That is incredible and surprising. So what is it about this guy that the Savior who's marveled at would be marveling at him? What is it? Well, the rest of verse 9 tells us. And turning to the crowd that followed him, Jesus said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. There it is. The gift is open. Do you see it? The the centurion responded to Jesus in faith. And Jesus commended his faith, not his works. Jesus commended his faith, not his worthiness. Jesus commends his faith, not his status and his power and his authority. Jesus commends his faith, not his ethnicity. He is the first in Luke's gospel To be a Gentile that responds to Jesus. And he's a Roman. A Roman soldier who would have been hated by the Jews. Jesus doesn't see any of that. What makes him marvel is one thing. One thing got the attention of Jesus. It's this man's faith. And by reflecting on Jesus' response to the faith of this centurion we realize that this man's example is meant to illustrate for us how we too should respond to Jesus. As we see his response, it models for us, it illustrates for us, how do we, how do we respond to Jesus? And here's what we discover. The way in which we're called to respond to Jesus is an immeasurable gift to us. Why do I say that? See, not only is Jesus a gift to us, which is what Luke's gospel has shown us in passage after passage after passage after passage, not only is Jesus a gift to us, but the means in which we can know him and have life in him is a gift. We could still have Jesus, but we have to have enough Bible knowledge to know him. We could still have Jesus as a gift, 
but I have to only been a Jew to receive him. But do you see the great gift we're given? We're not only given Jesus as a gift, the very way we come to Jesus is a gift. We're given faith as a gift. See, faith is the great gift God has made available for all people. Think about it. This Gentile centurion was able to experience the saving power of Jesus. The servant's life that he cared about was saved by the power of Jesus for one reason, his faith, period, end of sentence. Wasn't because he was worthy. Wasn't because he built the Jews a synagogue. Wasn't because of his authority. It's because he had faith. What a gift. What a gift. Actually, I love how Luke ends this story in verse 10. Look, look, look how Luke wraps up this story before moving on to the next one. Verse 10, he says, And when those who had, had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Think, think about how Luke just closed out this story. The healing is almost an afterthought. Did you catch that? It's almost like Luke was like, oh yeah. And when they got there, he, he yeah, the guy. I mean, you're, you're like, so did the guy live? Did Jesus heal him? And Luke's just like, oh yeah, yeah. When they got back, he was, he was just fine. The point of the story isn't about Jesus' ability to heal. The point of the story isn't about this man in need of healing. The point of this story is about the centurion's faith and what a great gift it is. Now this raises a question. Why is being able to respond to Jesus by faith such a great gift? If I say, this is a gift, what, what makes it a great gift? Well, a number of things. I just want to point out three that I see clearly here in the text. Here's the first one. Faith is a gift because it pleases God. Faith is a gift because it pleases God. Think about this again. Let's, let's go back to those opening words of verse 9. At, upon hearing this, Jesus marveled at him. He was pleased by him. Out of all the people in Israel, out of all the religious activity that was going on, Jesus didn't see the priests. He didn't see the Pharisees. He didn't see all these people doing all this stuff and go, wow, that's impressive. This Gentile soldier who belonged to Rome shows up, doesn't even see Jesus. He never even interacts with Jesus. He sends emissaries and friends, and Jesus says, that guy, I've not seen such faith. It pleased him. Think about Hebrews 11.6. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You know what the implications are? That faith does please God. And the fact that faith pleases God reveals to us what a gift faith is. Let, let me illustrate. Imagine for a moment a young mom with three children, ages 6, 9, and 11. And it's the day before her birthday. Her husband is out of town. He will not arrive till later in the day on her birthday. And her 11-year-old daughter comes to her. It says, Mommy, we, we want to get you something for your birthday. Will you take us to the store? So the mom loads up the three kids, takes them to the store. 
And there in the store, she helps them find the birthday cards. And she helps them pick out her birthday card. When they're done, they say, Mommy, we want to get you something. What would you like? And Mom says, well, you know what? I'd love a pair of earrings. Well, let's go pick some out, Mom. So they walk over there, and they're finding all kinds of earrings. And they say, do you like this pair? She says, I like that pair. So she grabs the card. She grabs the earring, makes sure she still has all three children. And she makes her way to the checkout line. And who's paying for it? She is. And then she gets home, and her 11-year-old says, Mommy, I really want your present to look nice. I don't know how to wrap it. Would you wrap it? Let me ask you this question. On her birthday, what's her response? Is it, I mean, I knew what you were getting me. Actually, I had to drive you there, pick it out, pay for it, wrap it. No. You know what she does on her birthday? She boos. That's the sweetest gift. It pleases her. Her children incapable of doing anything to honor her on her birthday. She does it all. And she doesn't say, "Mm, that's okay. Maybe one year you make your own money and buy me my own gift. She thinks, how thoughtful of my children. Listen, this is what it means to hear that faith pleases the Lord. God not only gives us Jesus He says, you're so incapable of being worthy of Jesus. I'm just going to say, come. And if you come, I'm pleased. (laughs) What a gift. It's not how much Bible knowledge do you know? Tell me your church attendance. Let me run through a checklist of, of moral things you've done or not done. Just come. And when we come, he says, I'm so glad you're here. This pleases me. But there's a second reason. Faith is a gift. Faith is about our belief, not our works. Faith is a gift to us because all it requires of us is to take God at his word. Think about what the centurion said at the end of verse 7 when he said, Jesus, I didn't expect you to come here. Not only am I not worthy for you to be in my house, all you had to do is say the word. Do you know what that centurion just said or or, or what we learned from this centurion? He just modeled for us how simple faith is. What does faith look like? Take the centurion's word. Jesus, all you had to do is say the word. He trusted in Jesus' words and knew that if Jesus said it, it would be done. He didn't put his confidence that his servant would be healed because he had enough faith. Because his faith was strong enough. Or because he had merited enough for Jesus to answer this prayer. Or because of his position of authority. No, his confidence was in the authority of Jesus alone. 
If you say it, it'll happen. And I believe it. And Jesus says, I've not seen faith like that in Israel. (laughs) And you want to say from this pagan, Roman soldier, you haven't seen faith in Israel like this guy? All he did was say, I believe you can do it. And Jesus says, that's the poster child. Be like him. Friends, what a gift. Consider what this means for us post-crucifixion. All we have to do is receive the salvation, receive the gift of salvation in Christ by trusting in Jesus completely. And we are saved. What a gift. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to pay off, do penance for all the bad things we've done. We say, Jesus, I do believe you are everything the Bible says about you. And you can do everything that the Bible says you can do. You can save me from every single sin I've committed. And you are the shepherd who will not let me be snatched out of your hand. And you will safely take me home. I believe it. That's a gift. There's a third and final way we see that this is a gift. Faith in Christ, as we see in this passage, is offered to everyone, no matter their cultural or religious background. Isn't this amazing story? That Jesus points out this guy as the paragon of faith. And he's a Gentile. He's a Roman soldier. And what this guy illustrates for us is a major theme in Luke's gospel. It's beginning to be emphasized here in chapter 7. It's emphasized first with the story of the centurion. It's going to be emphasized again next week in the story of the widow. And then it's going to be emphasized again at the end of chapter 7 with the woman who is sinful. What is this theme that's being emphasized all throughout Luke's gospel, but especially here in chapter 7? The outsiders become the insiders. It's one of the main themes of Luke's gospel. It's the outsiders who are often the insiders in Christ's kingdom. Those who are on the margins of the religious culture are either forgotten or often ostracized, but they are the ones who have a prominent place in the kingdom of Christ. Luke's gospel is going to illustrate that time and time again. It's often those who are at the center of religious culture who reject Jesus. And it's often those who are on the margins and on the the outsiders that Jesus had made. They have the best place at the table. And here's what that means for us. Race, gender, social status, religious background, none of these qualify or disqualify us from entrance into the kingdom of God. No matter who we are, doesn't matter what we've done, doesn't matter where we came from, one thing matters. Do you have faith? Do you have faith in Christ? No one is excluded. Now, if this is the point 
of this story, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And it's meant to illustrate how faith in Christ is a gift. This raises the question, how do we respond? How do you and I respond to this story about the faith of this man and what a gift it is? Well, the application is actually embedded right here in verse 9. Pay careful attention to what Jesus did after marveling at this man's faith. Notice what Jesus did. We can move right past it. He doesn't address the man's faith by talking to his friends about this man. He actually turns to the crowd and he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He he addresses the crowd, and when he addresses the crowd, he contrasts the centurion with those in Israel, the vast majority who have rejected Jesus. In other words, this is what Jesus did after seeing this man marveling at his faith. This is what Jesus was saying to the crowd. He was saying, this Roman official has done what few in Israel have done, even though they grew up under the teaching of the law, even though they weekly attend the synagogue, even though they've made pilgrimages to the temple, most of them lack faith. But this man, who's most likely never experienced any of this, this man, he still believed. He doesn't have the the history of growing up in the synagogue, hearing the law, hearing the stories of Moses, hearing about Father Abraham, and yet this man believed. Actually, his faith is quite remarkable. Think about it. This man trusted in Jesus even before he met him. Go back and read the story. Before he even met, meets him, and he believed Jesus could save the life of his servant, even though from what the narrative says, he hasn't even seen Jesus do a miracle. He's only heard he does miracles, but this guy hasn't seen it for himself, and yet he is as certain as can be that Jesus can do it. Well, what lesson can we learn from this man's example, especially compared to the Israelites of Jesus' day who rejected Christ. Here's the lesson. It's a simple one, but it is one we must, we must not miss. We must not neglect the gift of faith. I don't mean we just must not neglect, neglect our faith. We must not neglect the fact that faith is a gift. It is a gift. See, many of the folks in Israel had neglected the gift of faith. They had neglected the gift of faith because they had put all their attention and time and energy and focus on their religious deeds, their national identity, and their implementation of certain traditions that they thought made them more holy and please the Lord. And while they're doing all of this stuff, They lack the one thing, the one thing necessary, faith. Abraham believed God and was justified. The whole story of Israel rests on God called Abraham, said, I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to give you a land, and you are going to be my way of believing 
blessing the world. And you know what? It says Abraham believed and he was credited as righteous. And they got lost in all of their religious deeds and their national identity and all those things. And they forgot the one thing that God required of them and the one gift he had given them, faith. So can I ask you this question this morning? Can you relate to the Israelites? Maybe you're here this morning and you still don't understand what all of this is about. And maybe you have neglected putting your faith in Christ because you believe you have to be at a certain place before you can do that. You have to have enough knowledge. You have to have come to church long enough, heard enough, done enough. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, today's the day. Today is the day to put your faith in Christ. But for the vast majority who have put their faith in Christ, I think we can still relate to the Israelites. Here's why. Because we've neglected the gift of faith. We've lost our wonder that we've been saved by faith through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this question. Do you regularly view the act of faith as a gift from God? I don't, believe, I don't mean do you just believe that faith is a gift. When is the last time you were dumbstruck by the fact that not only did God give you salvation in Christ, but all you have to do is believe. Nothing else required. When's the last time that's affected you? I would imagine that for the vast majority of us here, because I know your stories, and most of us have grown up, not all, but most of us have grown up with some kind of religious upbringing. We've gone to church. I think we can be tempted to neglect the gift of faith due to our familiarity with Christian truth and Christian tradition. We can be like the Israelites, going to the synagogue, hearing the law, and not realizing the law should cause you to say, I can't keep the law, I need faith. Going and seeing sacrifices being made and thinking, I need, I need atonement for my sin. Is that you? Have you lost your sense of wonder at the gift of faith because you're so familiar with Christian truth? You've heard all the stories. You've heard talks on faith. Listen, if that's you, here's what often happens when we neglect the gift of faith. Church becomes routine. Our faith becomes weak, our passion for Christ diminishes, and often self-righteousness begins to take root in our heart. Does that describe you this morning? Does that describe you this morning? 
It's not that you're doubting, is any of this true? But your faith is weak. Coming to church is a routine. Your passion for Christ has diminished. And you are aware that self-righteousness is taking root in your heart. How do we counteract this temptation? That's where I want to close. How do we keep from neglecting the gift of faith? Here's the answer. By focusing on the giver of the gift of faith. We don't grow in our faith by looking at faith, our faith. Here's what I've learned about gift giving. Gifts obviously communicate something about the person receiving the gift. Every gift given to somebody would be a blessing to them because everybody loves different things. So when you give somebody a gift, it obviously says something about the person. But I believe a gift says just as much about the giver. You took the time to think of that, to give me? It cost you how much? You wrapped it so nicely. See, the gift says just as much about the giver as it does the recipient. And the gifts of God say so much about him. If we want to not neglect the gift of faith, we must focus our attention on the giver of the gift of faith. Listen, we serve a God who rewards the undeserving. Isn't that amazing? We serve a God who deserves the undes- rewards the undeserving. He's not impressed by the things that impress those in our circle of influence or that impress our culture. He is pleased when we admit how unworthy we are and when we look to him knowing that he can fulfill all of his promises because he has the power to carry them out. And because nothing expresses the heart of God as the giver more than looking at Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh, obeyed the law in our place, died in our place to atone for the sins we committed against Him. He took on and absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. He triumphed over death so that we don't have to fear death. And right now, He's interceding on our behalf before God. And He's given us the Holy Spirit to impart new life to us To create good fruit in us. Do you remember last week Jesus said, a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. Guess what? Jesus didn't say, bear good fruit, good luck. I'm going to give you the spirit who's going to bear the good fruit. Fruit you could never create on your own. So listen, all we have to do, all we have to do, simple but we can neglect this, is receive Christ as a gift, and we do that by faith, which is a gift. And once we've done that, we seek to live every day of our Christian life rejoicing in the giver of all these gifts. That's the message of the gospel. 
We receive the gift of Christ by faith, which is a gift. And then we live all of our days rejoicing in and celebrating the giver of all these things. Next week, we will come across another story that will take our attention off our faith and will help us see why our faith ought to be in Christ as we watch Jesus interact with this widow who's lost her son. And it will, once again, it will strengthen our faith as we look at the kind of Savior we serve. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, may you take what we've heard and would you write your truth on our hearts May the truth that you write on our heart today be one that is simple, but it never, it never stops amazing us. And it is a truth that we focus on every day. Not only the gift of Christ, but the gift of faith. That we can know you by simply putting our faith in you. And that's an incredible, incredible gift. And may we live all of our days seeing these gifts and by seeing them knowing what kind of giver you are. You are a good and gracious king. So we worship you. We thank you. And Lord, we want to live all of our days for your glory. Help us to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.